Well, a little bit about myself. So I'm Greg Loge. I'm the manager of IT Audit here with Internal Audit Services. I've been on UC Davis's campus for several years now. I was the IT director for a couple of the undergraduate schools. Um, I also worked at Gartner as a consultant for a while. Um, and then now I've returned to UC Davis and am in Internal Audit, where we cover both kind of the Davis campus as well as the health system. And I oversee the IT audit projects within the department. Um, also, more recently, I finished mentoring a SANS class on auditing network primers and systems. And I know there's at least a couple people here that took the class, so that's good. Um, I don't know how many people here are taking the Nessus class tomorrow that I'm also co-teaching. It's like a couple. Oh, good. Okay. So we'll talk a little bit today about Nessus more kind of at a high level, like as a tool to use for validating system configurations. And tomorrow in the um, the technical course, we'll actually be able to do a hands-on with Nessus. So if you have questions about that or if I don't go into enough detail, you can always ask me afterwards. All right, well, I'll just keep going. <laughs> um, the, so, so like I said, I'll start off with an overview of the cyber safety policy today, and then I'll also talk about the standards that go along with that. The cyber safety policy is, is our campus's um, local implementation of IS3. So for, for those of you from other campuses in the UC system, IS3 being kind of the overarching security policy that is out of UCOP. Um, our cyber safety policy, great, thank you. Oh, awesome. Presentation mode and everything, thank you. Let's see. So our cyber safety policy, um, or our policy we call cyber safety, is our local implementation. It has 16 security standards, which are our minimum standards for devices plugged into the network, which is kind of the general tool term that's used to describe any kind of computing device. Um, so technically, printers and everything else, any embedded device that's on the network, should should comply with this policy to the extent possible. And then I'll go into the IT audit program. So how do we do IT audits here at Davis? What do we look for, what do I look for, what's our IT audit program like? So the policy was established in 2005. It actually came out of an audit finding by one of my predecessors in internal audit um, that recognized that there was really no minimum security standard for computing devices. So this was problematic because a lot of departments didn't really have any guidance on what's the base level of configuration standards that need to be in place on their systems. <clears throat> the campus started an initiative to develop the policy and the 16 standards. Um, Bob Ono, who's not here, who's our IT security coordinator, actually was one of the people that led that initiative. And it covers 16 standards. It covers the, and, and it also includes an annual compliance reporting process and a planning process for all um, campus units, as well as the exception process. And I'll talk about all these. And that's one of the things I think is somewhat unique about the, our campus's policy is that it's not only a set of standards, but it's a compliance um, reporting process that happens every year. So without um, reading each slide, I'll try to go through just kind of the high level here. The security standards um, are published and maintained by IET. They are reviewed annually and updated, so they do stay somewhat relevant. Um, there's a committee, an oversight committee, that includes not only representatives from IT, but also from um, academic um, areas on campus as well as administrative areas and some of the technical representatives. So there's good good input in keeping them relevant. Um, again, the, the campus units must ensure devices, like I mentioned before, comply with these standards or develop plans to mitigate the risks of noncompliance. So as we'll talk about later, I'm sure you can imagine scenarios where you may have like a piece of research equipment where it has to run an outdated piece of, say, Windows operating system because the control software for it is um, you know, only works on that version. So cyber safety has a method for uh, 
recognizing that need, creating an exception for it, and also documenting kind of the mitigating risks, uh, or the, the steps you've taken to mitigate the risk associated with that. The um, annual reporting process, each, each year, every unit on campus has to submit a cyber safety report. So when I say unit, really it's down to the level of who's controlling those systems or in charge of those IT systems. So in most cases here at Davis, that's the department. So every department will actually fill out an IT um, cyber safety survey, which asks them various questions about their compliance with each of the standards. Those surveys then get all sent to the dean's office or vice chancellor or vice provost's office, the respective kind of overarching administrative unit for the, that department. The vice chancellor and vice provost's office will actually take those surveys then and they can create one response that they send off to the provost and chancellor. When compliance is not complete, um, there's a report that's generated must include compliance planning. And this, this is not actually reported, um, except for at, well, at the, the provost level it is, but the departments need to submit plans to the vice chancellor or dean's office and then they generate their own compliance plan. So if they're out of compliance, they have to have a plan on how they're gonna achieve compliance. We'll talk about this later as well. <clears throat> in cases where the standard is not applicable or there's um, the risks maybe are necessary for the conducting of business, the policy does allow a senior manager to accept that risk. So you can think of some cases where maybe a dean or a vice chancellor is willing to accept certain risks with not being in compliance. They have the ability to document that and accept it since they do that for all kinds of business operations. Again, the reports are summarized and then submitted annually to the Office of Chancellor or Provost. The, um, a report then is actually prepared for the CODVC on campus, our Council of Deans and Vice Chancellors, to give a kind of a state of IT security, which happens annually as well. The administrative units that submit these reports, there's 21 of them. As you can see, it's every you know, undergraduate college, every professional school, kind of the major academic units as well as some strictly administrative units, such as Office of Administration, um, IET. The standards, as we talked about, there's 16 of them. Um, the exception process, kind of mentioned already, actually, I'm going to kind of go through this slide. And the standards, just to here, I'll kind of touch on each one. Well, I'll then go into some more detail on the ones that I more frequently audit. So part of the audit process, I'll select standards I won't necessarily look at every single one for the purposes of testing. I'll maybe pick some of the ones that are more relevant based on risk for that particular organization. Um, as you can see here, the you know, software patch updates, antivirus, non-secure network services, authentication, personal information firewall services. I'll talk about all these in more detail on the next slides. <clears throat> the other standards include things such as physical security, open mail relays, proxy settings, um, audit logging, backup recovery, so disaster recovery is covered in this policy training, spyware. And then web application security I'll talk about as well uh, in, a, in a little bit, in a more detail. So what standards should be audited? Um, this is a kind of the first step in determining uh, where the focus of the audit should be on. And, and when I approach a unit, one of the first things that I'll do is do a kind of a preliminary survey of the IT and organization within the, within the department. So looking at a particular college or a particular administrative unit, and try to understand where their levels of risks are and what type of systems maybe they're more, more, have more risk, and what those applicable standards are I want to look at. The standards I'll base, so for example, like web application security, I may not look at 
in a department that doesn't have extensive web applications or doesn't have web applications that deal with sensitive information. They're still expected to be compliant with the policy, but for the purposes of auditing, I won't necessarily review in great detail if they're compliant with that piece of the policy. Certainly, if they have PII and they are have web applications that deal with it, then that'll be an area of focus. Disaster recovery, this is one that I frequently look at as well, just because one of the things I found is that, and maybe this is unique to our campuses, there aren't a lot of real good standards on what's a complete disaster recovery plan or what's an adequate disaster recovery plan. And so a lot of times departments may have um, strong backup strategies for their servers and some of their critical systems, but they won't really have a plan in place to deal with a, with a disaster and what type of steps they need to take to recover. And again, in certain cases, I know there's at least one person from the health system here, the, the scope of the audit actually may look at, if it's if a really large centralized IT organization, one of the steps that we've taken actually is we'll look at scoping the audit to review maybe just one or two of the standards, but enterprise-wide. So rather than look at um, you know, a series of standards, and every, you know, a sampling of departments, we may look at every department, but choose only one or two standards and then each, each time we do revise and do another, plan another audit, we'll pick a different standard to look at depending on the risk. So in this case, the, the health system's a good example because they have a very centralized IT environment here. So some of the specific standard software patch updates, you know, the gist of this being that systems must be able to receive critical security updates. They must still be supported by the vendor. Um, those updates must be applied within seven days. And in cases where that may not be possible, uh, there must be ex either an exception and some sort of mitigation to the risk. So a good example here would be, again, a piece of research equipment or potentially actually kind of this last sentence hits at it, hints at it is that some devices like medical devices may actually be certified by like the FDA and a vendor may not want to patch it because they're afraid that it will, won't operate or function properly. So it'll, it will be unpatchable in that sense because of regulation. So I'll be looking for what other mitigating controls may exist. Do they have some sort of um, security boundary that's isolating that device. Antivirus software, I'm sure everyone now, you know, run antivirus software on all your systems, must be updated within 24 hours. Non-secure network services, so one of the things cyber safety looks for is have you gone through and actually when you implement a new system, do you do some sort of review to ensure that you're only running the services you need to run and are you keeping those services up to date? Um, and also, the, I think the other important piece of this one is it mentions um, you must use an encrypted equivalent service if you're um, sending sensitive or confidential information. So this standard applies in a lot of cases with departments that need to transfer PII or student records or things that may be sensitive in nature between um, other, other units that are across an unsecured connection. Authentication, this covers several areas. Um, you know, number one, you need a password. Uh, you know, where passwords are used, don't have common dictionary words, have somewhat of a strong password. Default accounts must be uh, modified. And then this is the one that is real common, of course, and you probably have seen this, is that passwords used for privileged accounts must not be the same as, as your, you know, your normal account that you log in as. So in the end user context, you can probably think of a lot of units that maybe all their users log in as local admins. And that's a poor practice. And so what I look for here really is it's okay for an end user to have local administrative rights, but really it should be a separate account that they only use for the times when they need to use those elevated privileges. And otherwise use a regular account for um, you know day-to-day, -day, checking email, surfing the web. Personal information, this is one of the longer standards. Um, the first part here talks about 
the need to, to really scan and identify all PII on your network. So here at UC Davis, we've licensed Identity Finder, which is a commercial product that allows you to scan um, network you know, shares or systems across the network, or locally for that matter, to look for, um, for personal identifiable information. So social security numbers, driver's license, credit cards. In cases where you identify that information, then you must be removed, or if you really need to keep it, you have to have a plan to secure it. So there's some things that are mentioned here. It doesn't say you need to use encryption. You need to have a plan and how you're going to keep that secure. It mentions some things you can do. And so this is an area where I'll evaluate if you do have a need to have PII on your network, I'll try to work with you to understand you know, what types of controls you put in place and are those sufficient. This goes on to talk about um, the need for, if you have uh, third-party agreements where you exchange personal information. So for example, on campus here, we've gone away from this in many cases, but let's say you have a third party that you use for um, applicants. So you have um, graduate students or, or undergrads, maybe in a, or professional school students that actually submit their application online, and that includes social security numbers, or they're collecting some sensitive information, and then that's sent over to the, um, to the department that's paying that for that service. There'll need to be a formal agreement that requires them to abide by these policies as well as outlining the security requirements for that information. And then the final bullet here, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, if you have a unit that is developing applications that deal with PII, they need to adhere to secure coding practices. So the web application standard actually talks about adhering to OWASP, which we'll show you in a second. So I'll be looking at um, that in particular if you are developing applications that deal with, with PII. Firewall services, so I'm not sure the network architecture at other campuses, but here at Davis, at least on the the, the campus, not the health system side, that's the right term. Um, every unit really needs to have a VLAN firewall, so there needs to be some sort of security boundary that's a firewall on your VLAN, as well as a host-based firewall. So I'll be evaluating whether or not you have a VLAN firewall, and then also looking at the configuration of those host-based firewalls. The defaults need to be deny all incoming except explicitly permitted, then egress rules. Um, this was actually changed recently because of the feasibility of doing the more restrictive. But here, egress rules, you should at minimum block known bad traffic out. Web application security, I mentioned, um, must adhere to the OWASP top 10. And then backup and recovery. So this is, we don't actually have a separate policy that speaks specifically to disaster recovery. So IS-12, I believe, is the UCOP, disaster recovery kind of business continuity policy. This is our one statement we have related to that. So um, in reviewing units, this will be kind of the standard that I look at, as well as IS-12, just make sure that they have some sort of um, disaster recovery plan in place. Okay, so that's all the drive policy stuff. <laughs> Hopefully, it's not too, too bad. The audit objectives, so what are the things I look for in an audit? And I'll talk about each of these in more detail as we go along, but you know, one of the first things is reviewing the the recently submitted cyber safety reports. So that's one of the nice things about our campus's policy is that every year there's these reports submitted. So the first step I have, and there's a lot of information there, is getting a sense of what type of, um, what type, of, where some of those risks are, and then as part of the audit, I'll actually review those reports for completeness and accuracy. I'll review the exception reporting process, um, review the level and adequacy of compliance planning, and also. Um, and then get into more detailed testing of the compliance with the in-scope standards, so the scope, the standards that I have chosen that are applicable for this particular audit. So when looking at the cyber safety reports, 
when I talk about completeness, what I'm really looking for is, um, in the case of, say, I, I choose an undergraduate college, I'll be looking to make sure that every unit within that college has submitted a report or is covered by a, a report that's been turned in. So um, not to pick on a, a school, but say, say letters in science. I haven't actually audited letters in science. But say the um, uh, one of the departments in letters in science submits a report. It doesn't look, appear to have submitted a report, but it turns out their IT is actually supported out of the dean's office. This is hypothetical. So they were actually included on the dean's office report. So I would look for those types of discrepancies and follow up with the dean's office to make sure that all their systems were accounted for. And then I'll look for, at the accuracy. And this is really, the accuracy really comes down to when we do the sample testing. So as I talk later about Nessus, uh, for the in-scope security standards, I'll be kind of measuring, you know, what are, is what they're reporting actually what I'm finding when I do the testing. Um, I'll also review the approved exceptions of the policy. So if they have documented exceptions, I'll take a look at those to make sure that they're appropriately approved by a, you know, a senior manager as, as defined by the policy or one of their de designate, designees. Um, I'll see you know, how are they documented, who approved it, and then also what controls they put in place. So if they, if they have a documented exception for a piece of research equipment, say, have they, looked, have they put other controls in place where maybe they isolate it from the network because it's un it can't be patched or um, is it on a separate network that's not accessible except for maybe the system that analyzes the data that's being acquired by the electron microscope or whatever that soft the equipment is? <clears throat> the, um, I'll also review the level and adequacy of the compliance planning. So in this, in this context, I'll be looking at do they have a plan? Have they actually come up with a plan on how they're going to become compliant if they're not, uh, for the areas that are not compliant with policy, have they, you know, do they have a timeline? Are the plans adequate? So some of the things you know I might look for, are, you know, do they have a, a clear, clear details on how they're going to achieve this plan? Um, do they have time, timelines or milestones set, and have they assigned responsible individuals to to lead lead up actually the project? So, you know, to say we will we're working on getting compliant in a year might not be adequate for for what I'm kind of for what a adequate compliance plan would be. And then finally, the conducting detailed testing. Um, so looking at um, sampling systems and units to be tested in detail, and then the testing tools and methods. And I'll go into this now in more detail. So, so the very first step is to select which one of those 21 units am I going to look at. So um, if you recall, those are like the high-level reporting units to the provost office. So the you know, colleges, the schools, some of the administrative units. And really, this is a, a risk-based decision. So looking at the business and mission of the unit, one of the things I might look at, um, like I said before, the cyber safety reports, that's a wealth of information. If there's a unit that's wildly out of compliance, and it has been for a few years, that might be a place I want to go and look at. Um, known stores of PII, do they have business that deals with personally identifiable information uh, where they would be higher risk of, you know, if a security incident occurred? And then also, um, being an audit, we, we're, we're aware of kind of all the different security incidents that happen on campus, so that can be a sign of control deficiencies in a unit if they have frequent issues with that. Once selected, um, some of the, the first place I'll go, of course, is the, the, you know, the main administrative units, the dean's office, in this case, uh, or for example. And I'll review things like the completeness of the recent cyber safety reports, as I talked about. I'll also review the exception reporting, the compliance planning. These are all functions that the dean's office should be, should be leading. I'll also then work with the dean's office to identify high-risk applications and business units within their college. So sometimes, I don't know if people are in these units, sometimes you know there's a department that has um, maybe a higher-risk business functions, maybe 
one that you've been trying to work with to, to you know, get secure or, or have issues. And that's where audit can be kind of a service to help facilitate that. Um, and then almost always the dean's office is selected as one of the detailed testing units just because as the dean's office they typically, or the, or the vice chancellor's office, they you know, have um, administrative functions that touch lots of units, generally have sensitive information. And so they're normally always one of the higher risk areas we'll want to look at. So then the next step is to sample some departments within, within that organizational unit for more detailed testing. So I, you know, a good example might be the College of Ag. They may have 21, 20 some odd units if you count departments and centers and everything else. I'm not going to be able to go to every single one of those and do detailed testing in every single one of those units. So I'll sample some of those units to do, to do further, further standard testing in addition to the dean's office. And so in this case, again, interviewing the senior managers in the dean's office is some of the information I'll use business missions, cyber safety reports, kind of all the same things, but now down to the level of the department. Once that sample is selected, so we have the dean's office and some units now, I'll then start to do the detailed review of the standards. And here it's, may actually have to um, do further sampling. So say you have a really large department, I might not actually scan uh, with a credentialed scan every system in that department. I may want to look at their servers, some of their critical servers, and then maybe take a, a representative sample of end user systems. So say they have an active directory and all their administrative server systems are on, and I may take a sample of those, and then say the faculty labs are all individual kind of islands of IT support. I may take a sample of those as well and do some scanning in them. So some of those tools that I'll use for this, um, this is kind of an Cyber safety, actually, I'll take a step back. Cyber safety is actually used to be divided into high level standards and level two standards, level one and level two. So level one were the first priority. And over the years, they've now gotten rid of that designation. They're all the same priority level. But for my purposes, for auditing, I really focus on kind of what used to be the high level standards um, for sort of the most bang for my, my time's buck. But looking at these, these are some of the high level ones. Web application security and disaster recovery actually are, were considered level two. Um, but they're ones that I would commonly look at. The top several there, as you can see, actually, we have one more slide. Um, I'll use Nessus, and I'll do, I'll do a uh, credential scanning with Nessus to, to evaluate the compliance with those particular standards. Personal, and I'll talk about that in a second. Personal information, um, Identity Finder is the tool the campus has licensed, so I won't necessarily, I'm not going to come to your department and scan all your systems looking to see where your, ID, where your PII is. What I am going to do is see if you have a process that you've gone through to actually identify the PII, and if you have, then I, then I may use Identity Finder to, to ensure that what you've told me as you've identified, you know, what I find is the same, just to validate it. Firewall services, if I, if I am going to do a, a review of your firewall rule set, I may use some technical tools to actually send packets through the firewall to see what it's being blocked. Um, with application security, I think later today, actually, there's a talk on AppScan Enterprise, which is the, the tool that UC Davis has licensed. Um, it's a commercial web application vulnerability scanner. And one of the things I, I won't do is I'm not going to point that and scan your production application because if anyone's used applications, uh, web application scanning tools like this, you know that they'll, they can fill a bunch of bogus data in your, your um, app. They can cause all kinds of problems. So, but what I will look for is, is if you have sensitive web applications that you should be scanning, is do you have a testing program? Do you have a test environment? Are you scanning those applications to ensure that they don't have vulnerabilities? And in here at Davis, because the tool we have is AppScan Enterprise, I'll look to see if you've done scans with AppScan. 
and I can log in and review those reports on our AppScan server to see when you ran them last, what the results were. I could even work with you to do a scan, maybe one of your test servers, um, you know, in conjunction with you, and to verify that the code is the same, you know, on both your production and, and uh, test environment. And then disaster recovery, which is really more of a documentation review, maybe how to do some sample restores from backup, interviewing some key people involved with the planning process. <clears throat> so. The, the network vulnerability scanning piece of this is really one of the, the, the key things to being able to evaluate these systems in a, in a repeatable, thorough manner. And one of the, you know, the real goal here is to have it be reliable, repeatable, thorough. Um, and, and to do that, you know, to sit down, to imagine yourself sitting down and looking at software versions on this machine and, you know, each and it just seems like, you know, you're never going to be able to touch a lot of systems. You're not going to be totally accurate every time. So it's really essential to have a tool to do this for you. Some of the advantages, um, you know, the ability to interrogate a large number of systems efficiently. So you can point it at a whole block of systems and have it scan, kind of fire, and sit there and watch it run. <coughs> the, um, it also can identify systems on the network. So Nessus in particular has a TCP scanner. So it'll do, you know, network mapping. It'll identify what's plugged into the network. So you may go in and, and a, you may have a list of, you know, here's all our supported systems. But those are the, the ones you know about. What about the ones that are on the network that you don't know about? So Nessus can help make sure that you know what you're, what you think you have is really matching what actually exists out there. And um, it also can do a broad number of, you know, system and security uh, system and security issues can be evaluated. So obviously you can scan Windows, Unix, Mac. You can also um, identify to some extent rogue wireless access points with Nessus. So through the network, you can actually based on um, the MAC address of the access point you can tell that a device is, a, is an access point that you may not know about. And depending on your network infrastructure here at Davis, um, there's a tool that the op Network Operations Center developed that allows you to actually go in and locate the NAM that a MAC address is connected to. So you can actually kind of hunt down APs this way that, you may, not, that may not be authorized. Um, it can help identify suspicious or pop possibly compromised systems. In one of my audits, um, I came across a system that looked like it was running Windows, Linux, and it was behind a NAT gateway, and went out and took a further look at it, and it was, um, it had been, it had been rooted, so I had a rootkit on it. And then again, we'll talk about in a second with credential scanning. Um, with Nessus and credential scanning, you can actually evaluate a wide variety of client software to see if it's been up to date, which is essential for the, looking at the software update standard. So, have you updated Adobe Acrobat, with, you know, which is kind of a, a full-time job these days? Or have you updated Flash, or you know, are you running the current version of the Java runtime engine? <clears throat> Some of the caveats um, for scanning, you know, it can be dangerous. So you can crash systems. You can have um, cause denial of service situations or take down systems altogether. Um, various tests are actually marked as you know dangerous or are denial of service checks. So some of the things to consider when using Nessus is, you know, you may have heard that there's the safe checks checkbox, and that's checked by default. But there's also denial of service plugins that you should disable. <clears throat> um, and again, even even not necessarily totally dosing the box, you may cause a degraded level of service. So if it's a critical application and you're slowing it down, that can be very negative. I think one of the key things here is to get approval from the highest authority possible in writing. So in a department, if you're the sysadmin, and you want to run Nessus on your systems, talk to the chair. You know, it, the campus recognizes that, you know, that's your area of responsibility. 
these systems you must maintain, keep secure. You should really get approval from the chair, though, or you know, authorizing you to do this. Make sure they understand some of the potential risks and that it's, it's communicated to the population of people you will be scanning. And also, one of the best practices really is to scan with proper notification and planning with the client. And there's an asterisk here because one of the risks of doing that, of course, is you tell everyone you're going to scan, someone knows they're running something that's not compliant, they turn it off you know, for the time that you're going to be scanning the network. So you don't necessarily see that it exists. So that's something to consider um, depending on the type of scan you're doing and what you're looking for. One of the key, the key things here, I think, that some people don't understand when they first start learning about vulnerability scanning is that if you don't do an authenticated scan and log into the host, if you're running, let's say, like a Windows box and it has its, its default firewall turned on and maybe it has some ports open, you're really not going to get the full picture of, of its patch level, what vulnerabilities may exist on that system. Um, same with servers. I mean, you may have your server set up. It's a web server. You only allow port 80 through. Nessus is going to try its best to find out what else is running on it and what's, what's secure or not. But unless you do a credential scan, you're not going to know what other vulnerabilities may exist. Now, in the case of the server, that may, not, that may be less of an issue because the only thing that's accessible over the network is 80, and no one really logs in interactively with the host except for a few people, and you know, there's, there's other considerations. Certainly, though, with client systems, people are browsing the web. They're clicking on Adobe PDFs. JavaScript is firing off all the time. So these are things that, that really need to be evaluated in detail. To, using a credential scan to know what level of patch compliance exists. Some of the, the issues with this, and tomorrow in, the, in tomorrow's class we'll actually talk a little more detail, but some of the settings that have to be made on a Windows box to allow this to occur include allowing um, uh, administrative logins over the network to actually interact with the registry remotely, and also to create an exception in the firewall on the host, the host-based firewall, or, or network-based firewall for scanning across a network-based firewall to allow the scanner to go through. And there are considerations, obviously, with doing that to try to make it as restrictive as possible so only a scanning system can get to this, the, the computer you're looking at. <laughs> and I can talk to people afterwards. If you have questions, we can talk maybe at the time. So assigning a spe specific IP address to the scanner is essential in that case. Other things to consider, um, the network topology. If I am sitting in my office on campus uh, and I try to scan say, something at the health system. Well, it's going to go through potentially several firewalls. It's going to you know, maybe get interrogated by other things on the network. Um, or maybe another department. You know, they could be running an IPS. They could be running an IDS. And it might set off a bunch of alarms. And someone's going to get paged and wonder what's going on. So it's important that, to understand your network topology. Um, it also will affect your scan results. You may have a lot of your scan traffic blocked at a certain point in the network, which is, is good if you're evaluating how well that control is preventing someone from, on your side of that device from being able to do certain things. Uh, but it could be bad if you're actually trying to evaluate a system, say, from a different perspective on the network. So it's really important to understand the topology. And also the other key thing is to be available um, during the scan so clients can contact you. So if people have questions or uh, something you know, arises where it looks irregular on their servers, you know, they can call you and talk to you. Are you scanning this right now? What's running? Um, or if something goes down or it has some adverse effect, you know, you can stop the scan immediately and try to find triage what happened. So 
Um, the last part, what I want to talk about, and actually it looks like we'll have a little bit of time so we can have, if people have questions and we can get into it, um, the, is, are the audit reports. So I thought it would be worthwhile to give people a, a sense of what, what a report looks like and kind of the format we use um, or that we've developed. Has anyone here been audited by like internal audit at UC Davis? Not like an IT audit, but so, well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so a lot of audit reports are very, are very like verbose. There's a lot of like written documentation. They're um, traditionally, at least here, they're, they've been you know several pages long in some cases. What we try to, what I try to kind of implement is more of a of a high level, almost like a. It's actually a PowerPoint deck, but really it's just to to hit the high levels and, and try to put everything into a matrix so it's a little clearer to understand. So the the real you really get to the meat of the issue um, while still providing enough information. So. The basic areas of our audit reports, you know, some background on the on the project, the process that we we took to conduct the audit uh, at a high level, and then um, in an executive summary, obviously, kind of the, the main findings from the project, some of the main issues. We've created an executive summary table, which talks about some of the um, the ways we present our findings. I'll show that in a second, and then I'll have a findings table for each standard that was reviewed, and that's a standardized format. That can be kind of high level. So that information can be things like, you know, not all systems are being patched per, per policy. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. So sometimes you really do need to communicate more detailed information. And, and, and the approach we've taken is to kind of give this as an appendix to maybe some of the more technical people in the unit to the system admins. Maybe, you'll, you know, everyone, you know, if you'll get a copy of, say, the Nessus report, uh, which can be several pages long. Uh, but that won't be included in the main report. One of, the, one of the real important things to keep in mind here is that findings can be very, you know, extremely sensitive. So obviously, you know, vulnerability scanners can give you a lot of sensitive information, especially when you're running them as local admins. I mean, you're going to get lists of accounts on the box and all kinds of stuff that in the wrong hands could be really useful to them in a bad way. So it's, it's really important that, well, one of the first things we do actually is try to keep the language as general as possible while still being useful. So as I mentioned, patches not imply within seven days per policy versus all systems are running JRE, you know, or Java RTE, you know, 1.4. The specifics then, you know, can be shared in a separate document. However, in practice what I've been finding is that really the sometimes, you know, it's the entire audit report needs to be treated as confidential. So we will submit it, sometimes only hard copy if we can't submit it in an encrypted manner that's suitable. Um, we'll only share it with certain individuals that need to see it. Um, and, and, and that's just the way it's treated from the get-go. So something to keep in mind if you do your own vulnerability scanning or write these types of things up. The executive summary um, this is an example of kind of a sanitized, generalized one from one of our reports. But basically gives a high-level high review of what was found, what kind of issues were uh, determined. One of, the, one of the things that is a concern for management is when some of the reporting really isn't accurate. Um, so they're signing off on the report saying, you know, this is what I think is occurring, and and it's not they're not fully aware of the risks that are um, in their environment. So that's one of the important things that we'll try to help them understand if that, if that does exist. The executive summary table will cover, um, you know, the areas that were in scope, you know, the results if it was partially compliant, not compliant, um, you know. Compliance plan insufficient. Accurately reported, we'll try to you know make a determination if what we found is accurate uh, based on the most recent cyber safety report. And then 
part of our audit process is we'll assign a risk level. And this is kind of the standard um, UC audit, you know, low, high, medium um, risk associated with the corrective actions. The um, general audit observation area of the report will cover things like the, um, was the CyberSage report accurate? It, are compliance plans accurate? Were exception requests um, requested? And then we'll go into the more detailed standards. So software patch updates, we'll have a table. Observation will be on the left. What we found during our testing, um, you know, for each one, is its level of accuracy was being reported. And then the management corrective action is really developed in conjunction with, with the management of the unit we're auditing, because that's the action that that group is going to take in order to become a compliant. So it has to be something that, that they're going to do that's going to address the issue. Uh, we can help make recommendations, help them decide what's a sufficient action, but really um, it's unique to their environment. So you know, patching may not be done, being done in seven days, but the process you take to correct that is really going to be specific to your operations. And then again, the priority here, um, which actually I think is risk now, that's outdated, but it, it applies to the corrective action, which is uh, what's used for Office of the President reporting. So another example, and, and the action date, actually I should mention too, under corrective action is when the unit that's being audited will have it complete. So. And that's all I had for material. I was hoping to have time for people to ask questions or you know, I don't know if this is real straightforward or a lot of review for people that are from Davis, but any questions about the process or, yeah? Sure, so that's a good question. So, um, yeah, I'll, certainly. So the question was, um, if I phrase it correctly, is what's, what's the process I use to determine um, when someone is not compliant with a standard or compliant. So the example given was, what if you have one system that I find that's not patched within seven days, uh, but all the other systems were, or um, a certain number were. So this, not to digress too much, one of the challenges with sampling is that trying to infer what the population is like from the sample size I select. And in many cases, I can't necessarily do that. So the sampling I'm doing is looking to see if there are issues and try to identify what those, some of those issues are. If the, if the process, the business process in place for patching isn't um, comprehensive or isn't, you know, covering all the systems, that's when I may look at non-compliance. So if you, if you say, for example, you run a WSUS server, so you're doing Windows patching, but you're not running any kind of, or you don't have any process to ensure your client software is being patched, like Adobe. So you, you periodically run some Adobe updates, but you're not pushing them out centrally. Not all your systems are managed. That would be an example of non-compliance. If you have a process that does that, though, say you run like a client like Altiris, you know, where you're managing the desktop, you're, you're managing a, a known set of software, you may be compliant with policy to a certain degree, and I may say you're compliant, but the, I may point out other deficiencies with, with the process. Like, say everyone has local admin rights and they all can install whatever they want. So you're managing a core area really well of software, you know, but you're not necessarily, um, you know, handling these outliers, if that makes sense. a good question. Um, so uh, 
each audit typically we budget like 350 hours for, roughly. So that's one audit project, and that's um, uh, that's you know audit hours. So it it varies somewhat. I mean, it, for example, next year's audit plan, we, we're actually going to audit a department, not an entire school. So the hours for that are less, but it's a particular department. So we're taking kind of a different approach. In other cases, we may be auditing a really large organization. Like when we did the health system audit, we actually are one of the audits we've done. Like not to pick on the health system, but it's a large organization. It might be more hours. So. Um, so my position is fairly new. Uh, our audit office actually never had a dedicated IT audit manager. Um, we've had people that have had an IT audit responsibility in, in the department. Um, starting in February of 2008, I was hired uh, actually with some joint funding from our IT department, and the goal really being the first two years to focus primarily on cyber safety reviews. And so that's what I've been spending most of my time on. Um, Pure, pure audits, we've done about three. Um, part of my time is also spent doing investigations as well as advisory services, which are the three uh, kind of main areas of internal audit, regardless of the, the oper you know, business function that we've covered. So um, three main, main kind of areas, the main units. Not, um, well, geez, that's a hard question. So, oh, so say if you took the 21, you say three out of 21. I mean, that might be kind of a rough, a rough number, yeah. No, that's okay, yeah. Sure. Right. So the, the assessment process I think you're referring to is Office of the President asked each campus to assess their level of compliance with IS-3, and that was a, a separate like survey or, or document. Um, our, and that was sent to all the, the, the uh, well, I guess probably the CIO equivalents, but our, on our campus, Bob Ono, the yeah, IT security coordinator, has been the one who's been kind of leading that up. His, he has a responsibility for completing that questionnaire. The cyber safety process we have with the reports that people submit annually um, Help him help inform him in, in completing that. So we're, I think, in some one way, kind of ahead of the game in that we have a lot of that information already collected at the departments. As far as the the assessment you were talking about and my role in that, I, I don't necessarily look at that or I'm involved in it. There there has been some talk about having audit audit those assessments at some point. Um, so I may look at those and, and certainly having cyber safety reports and some of the work I've done will help facilitate that. But yeah. That's an excellent question, actually. You know, I should I should add that to this <laughs> presentation because really that's one of the key things with for the audit process is the audit. You know, there's the there's the work uh, field work that identifies the the observations. Uh, you know, the uh, corrective actions are developed, but the and the reports generated. But then the the real key piece is that follow up. So ensuring that uh, the dates are met, reporting on when they're completed, if they're still open. So we have a um, process of Past due corrective actions get reported periodically to the Office of the President, and if they're a certain level of, of they're you know high, they might get reported to the Regents at the Audit Committee every year. So our role is following up to see if they've been completed and helping you know make sure that they are actually getting done. So if a unit comes back and says yes, we've completed, you know, 
antivirus is now in all of our systems and it's being up to date. I'll come back out and actually do some testing to see that that's been, been done. So it may be a smaller subset. It may be looking at some of the same systems. I may pick just another sample and look at them and um, look at the documentation they have that they've completed that. So it requires our, um, our uh, you know, agreement to, to close it out, I guess you could say. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, I, I have not, actually. Uh, that hasn't been an audit we focused on. I mean, certainly, um, yeah, like security awareness training or just or just training on how to operate, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that hasn't been an area, at least. Uh, other questions? All right. Well, I'm available. We have a few minutes here, I think. If you, anyone has any questions, you can come up and talk to me. But, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, in the back. Every campus has an identified IT auditor or someone who leads like the IT audit. Um, whether or not they're a manager in audit, it, it varies. So some campuses have like an associate director or a manager. That's my role. Some have an auditor who's sort of the more technical person in the in the office. Um, but every every campus does have someone that's been identified. It, there is a push um, to have a IT audit program be incorporated in the annual audit planning for every campus. And so every campus is doing that, and and also in trying to integrate IT reviews more in just general audits. So if you're looking at, say, the payroll function, you would be expected to do like a preliminary review of the risks associated with the IT systems related to payroll. So that makes sense. I know they're working on it. Bob would be, yeah, I'd have to talk about that. But that, yeah, I know they were working on having some standards and templates that departments could use. So I don't know if anyone here is involved in that. But. Yeah, that'd be real helpful. Definitely. Yeah, what, for an instant response plan. Yeah, because that is one of the standards and, and is pretty of a standard process. So. Um, in those cases, uh, well, those, that's a great question. So in those cases, if, if I say go to a department and we're looking at their IT systems and, and one of the systems that's critical is also bound by PCI because it does credit card processing, I may look to see if not, it, well, I'd have to determine on a case-by-case -case basis. So like in PCI's case, I may look to see have they had uh, someone, uh, have they done their own PCI audit, you know, under the standard, have they had someone come out and actually evaluate their controls associated with it. That may be a separate audit project, though, in that sense. You know, if it's a FERPA system, or that may, may be one of the things I look at as far as risk to see if they're they're dealing with. But it could be outside the scope as well. So it depends on the the, the scenario, I guess. Um, certainly, like if, for example, I looked at a system and it had sensitive information that was that were student records um, and that were protected under uh, FERPA, I may then go out and actually see what kind of controls they have related to protecting that information that that is FERPA related. And look at the standard for guidance, or the regulation for guidance. Yeah. 
I, I, I have used it a little bit. We have someone in our office. A ACL is the audit control language. It's um, a, a tool that lets you query like sets of data and analyze and compare information. So um, uh, we do have someone in our office that uses ACL uh, extensively. And we actually go to her a lot of times if we need to, like, to do queries on you know, how many people are paid from this you know, account or those types of things. I've played around with a little bit analyzing some like database that I have, but a lot of times I'll just use other query tools to pull data out of like a SQL database and look at it. So I won't necessarily get into it with, with ACL. But yeah, we do we our shop our office does use it pretty extensively. All right. Well thank you for your time. <laughs>